Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. The name of this episode is called Getting Advanced Reactors to Market. Here we are talking with Alex Gilbert, former project manager at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, a think tank working hard to get advanced nuclear technology off the ground around the world in order to provide humanity with the clean energy we need for a healthy planet. Regulation is on our minds as we go through some of the bureaucratic steps involved in getting nuclear energy approved by regulators and into the marketplace for operation. We talk about this process for current light water reactors and for next generation reactors. Many of these new designs are not yet approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NRC, and will require exhaustive additional regulatory processing. The question is, can we streamline such approval of new reactors in a timely and affordable manner to deal with the emergent threat of the climate crisis? Clean energy is needed now, and delays are at our peril. We then wrap up by getting familiar with some exciting new nuclear technology for use in space exploration, including its regulatory journey to approval and deployment. Alex is just the right person to talk to about all this, and we are glad to have gotten him on the podcast. Here's some more info about our guest. Alex Gilbert is a complex system researcher focusing on nuclear innovation, technology, commercialization, and regulatory modernization. He is Director of Space and Planetary Regulation at Xeno Power, where he is responsible for licensing and approvals for isotope power sources, for space, maritime, and other applications. Previously, Alex was a project manager at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, or NIA, where he led research and advocacy to commercialize advanced nuclear reactors to mitigate climate change. He was lead author of the report U.S. Advanced Nuclear Energy Strategy, which laid out how government, industry, and civil society can work together to establish U.S. leadership in the next generation nuclear energy. Before the NIA, Alex worked in the private sector as a consultant analyzing energy markets, environmental regulations, and nuclear policy. 
As an academic practitioner, Alex has published peer review research in the journals Jewel, Energy Policy, and Space Policy, as well as technical comments in the journals Science, Nature, Nature Climate Change, and Nature Energy. He is a fellow with the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines and adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University, where he co-teaches a graduate course on nuclear energy. Alex is pursuing a PhD and a master's in space resources at the Colorado School of Mines, combining engineering and public policy to research space resources, space environmental governance, and space nuclear power. He has a master's of energy regulation and law from Vermont Law School. Sounds like Alex has a very involved background in energy policy and nuclear technology. I'm excited to be exploring regulatory issues in more detail because many nuclear advocates know regulations are part of the problem in a general sense, but would be interested in learning the more intricate details about these issues and what is being done to address them. I also have a personal interest in space-based applications of nuclear technology, whether that is providing electrical power for spacecraft systems or advanced nuclear propulsion systems. Definitely. Alex is clearly an academically decorated and talented expert in his field of nuclear power regulation. I'm quite impressed at his work being cited in very prestigious journals. Regulatory stuff to me seems so crushingly complex and dry, so I'm glad we have someone like him on the podcast who is knowledgeable and enthusiastic about this subject in order to break it down for us. I'm especially interested in learning about some of the issues with the NRC as an agency, which in my opinion has become a ball and chain for the nuclear industry with obscene amounts of red tape, almost to the point of regulatory capture. I could be wrong about that assessment, and it would be good to actually get an idea about how the sausage is made and whether the regulatory body is helping or hurting the viability of the struggling industry. For sure. Alex Gilbert is doing valuable work by advancing nuclear power and other nuclear technologies. It shows that plenty of people are still very enthusiastic about the future of nuclear power in America, despite claims of irrelevancy. This helps our pro-nuclear movement keep growing. Climate change is very serious, and we need massive amounts of clean and reliable energy. We can leave no stone unturned in procuring such energy, and nuclear has the most promise, given its sheer energy density. The climate simply cannot wait, and we have to make sure the paperwork is not getting in the way of solutions. Absolutely. Here is our conversation with Alex. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. Well, to start off, what led you to decide to become an expert in nuclear power regulation as a profession? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for me, it was a surprise to end up in the nuclear industry. This was not my career path or plan originally. Uh, what happened is that I originally was interested in dealing with international development as well as environmental issues. And over time, uh, if, you, if you care about the environment, you care about energy because energy has the greatest impact on the environment. And if you care about energy, you care about the environment because uh, environment is the greatest constraint on the energy system. So I relatively quickly fell into energy systems and I ended up going to Vermont Law School uh, where I focused on energy regulation and law. So I actually, my, my advisor uh, was Benjamin Sovacle, who a lot of people know as an anti-nuclear scholar. I worked under him for quite a while, and uh, this was around 2013. So this was just right after Fukushima happened and the nuclear renaissance had crashed down really hard. And at the time, I was largely skeptical of nuclear because of the economics and the challenges of getting new plants built. 
Uh, but as I started working um, in the private sector, I increasingly started working on more and more nuclear policy issues. And that's really because if you look at, again, that environmental question, nuclear energy is the largest source of carbon-free power in the United States. It's the largest, uh, second largest source globally. Mm -hmm. So it's really a keystone to how we're going to decarbonize our grid in the future. And the big thing that kind of kept drawing me more and more into nuclear policy is that there's very serious and pressing policy needs, especially when we're talking about getting new reactors online and expanding our nuclear capacity. Um, there were just not as many people working in that. And I think if you look at, say, renewable energy, electric vehicles, energy efficiency, a lot of those other clean or green energy sectors, there's a lot of policy support and there's a lot of advocates and those sectors are moving forward generally pretty well. And on the nuclear side, uh, we really saw that, uh, I really saw that there uh, was not as much progress on advanced reactors and that we were just barely holding on to keeping the existing fleet. And so uh, I started getting really into kind of trying to figure out the solutions to the existing fleet problems in around 2015, 2016. Um, that's when we started seeing that really first wave of recent retirements. We started seeing states that are really starting to get more active on trying to keep their plants around. Uh, and then about three years ago, I joined the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, uh, and that was really to focus on advanced reactor policy, essentially recognizing that if we could get a new technology to market, if we could actually get it past all the regulatory barriers, get it commercialized, we can unlock a whole new class of technology to decarbonize not just electricity, but also heat, hydrogen production, other sorts of sectors. And the, the potential, the way I really thought about it is that my lever as a nuclear policy expert on the decarbonization scale was bigger than any other lever I could find to work on climate change and environmental issues. Plus, when you talk about nuclear energy, you have all the other benefits in terms of economics, national security benefits, trade relationships, international development. And so I just kind of fell into it because I had these other interests. And then over time, just really grew to love the technology and love figuring out the regulatory challenges because they are steep. But there are pathways forward, and we're trying to figure out, I think, as an industry and as a nation right now, uh, what is the best way that we can move this technology forward that meets all of our energy and environmental goals. Definitely. the uh, I really identify with the knowing how much leverage you have uh, in making the most progress and the most impact in the world. And that's a very similar story to how I fell into nuclear advocacy myself. And uh, so on the regulation side, like historically, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, uh, that was pretty much designed and intended to approve current types of light water reactors and like the yep. Westinghouse AP-1000. Um, so if you can run us through a summary of like what is the regulatory process of getting one of these types of reactors to market uh, built and operating? Yeah, so the most important thing to understand about the regulatory system as it exists right now is that it has its root in the Atomic Energy Act of 1954. And yeah, that, that, that's a long time ago. Um, and that's when we first opened up the really nuclear science generally uh, to be able to take advantage and uh, achieve the vision of President Eisenhower and the Atoms for Peace, use nuclear energy to help mankind develop. And so when you look at that history, the structure that we have today for regulating large light water reactors is decades and decades old. Uh, originally, it was under the Atomic Energy Commission, which oversaw things for the first 30 years. Uh, in 1974, that was broken up into what became the Department of Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And part of the reasoning there was that you shouldn't have one agency responsible for both promoting and regulating nuclear energy technology. 
And so when you look at how the NRC formed, the NRC started in 1974, uh, but when you have Three Mile Island happen only a handful of years later, uh, a conservative safety culture was bred into the agency, and it inherited the statutory framework and the regulatory framework from the Atomic Energy Act uh, and the Atomic Energy Commission. And it had to figure out with modern tools, how did they deal with light water reactors? And so when you look at that system now, there's essentially three major regulatory pathways that we um, are concerned about when we're trying to regulate a large light water reactor. You have part 50, which is that original regulatory system. And in that you have a power plant apply for a construction permit. Once they've demonstrated in that construction permit that their eventual design is likely to meet safety criteria, they're able to start construction. Then you have uh, a operating license. So once you actually have the facility built, uh, as you're going through that process, you get an operating license showing that your final facility actually meets the requirements. Then you can operate that facility for 40 years initially, and there's extensions you can do later on. We also have Part 52, which we developed after Part 50, and this was really done at the NRC itself, not the Atomic Energy Commission. And the idea there was that we actually need to introduce a lot more flexibility into how we regulate re reactors, that this two-part process of an operating permit, and a, uh, um, sorry, a construction permit and an operating license was maybe not necessarily the best for all types of reactors. And so Part 52 has what's called a combined license, and that combines those processes together. So once you apply for a license, it's a one-step process that once you get that granted, you can then begin construction and go straight through to operation. There's also some optional parts there. So they have uh, certain types of way to get design approval. So that allows you to design a reactor, and then you can have future combined licenses refer to that design to reduce your licensing burden. You also have things like early site permits, so you can actually start preparing a site ahead of time. So there's a number of flexibilities there that we were hoping uh, would help during the nuclear renaissance to make licensing a more straightforward process. And I mentioned uh, three pathways. The third one's actually kind of cross-cutting, and that's part 51, and that's environmental permitting. Uh, that's uh, due to the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires that for major federal actions significantly affecting the quality of the human environment, federal agencies prepare a statement that looks at those impacts as well as ways to mitigate those impacts. And because of how that uh, developed historically and the Atomic Energy Commission actually played a major role in the case law related to NEPA, uh, the, every single time that the NRC issues a major license, and that means a license for a reactor, uh, they are required to also do a parallel environmental analysis. So. Right now, the way it stands is whether you're using Part 50 or Part 52 to regulate your large light water reactor, you need to also at the same time they're doing a safety analysis, you do an environmental analysis in parallel. So those two pathways together get you to your license. The other important thing to understand about how we regulate the system currently is that it's a prescriptive-based system. What does that mean? It actually means that we don't necessarily have clear objective requirements for the safety levels that we're trying to create at a reactor. We've figured out over time, exclusively with large light water reactor technology, what design features generally make them safe. And that's things like containment systems, that's things like defense in depth, certain operator requirements. And so we know that if you have these things, generally speaking, you're gonna be able to operate a large light water reactor safely. And that, I think, is where we kind of get to a problem when we start talking about new types of reactors. Cool. Yeah, what are the some of the timeframes for getting approval on these various parts for the, you know, operating and the construction license? 
Yeah, so that's something that historically the timelines were kind of variable and they fluctuated over time. And that was actually a big point of contention with how NRC was running things. So if you looked originally at, uh, say, the construction permits under Part 50 for most of the reactors that we built in the U.S., before the uh, early 1970s, most of those timelines were less than five years um, from the very first time that you applied to when you got your permit and then did operating license and then could start construction. By the time that we actually got to the end of the 1970s, the overall permitting and licensing pathway was taking as many as 10 or more years. Uh, and there were a number of reasons for that. Some of those were related to regulation. Um, when NEPA was first incorporated into the licensing framework, that actually caused about a year and a half delay for most reactors, just because the Atomic Energy Commission had to come up with a regulatory framework there. Um, but in other cases, uh, it's actually just due to kind of what was happening more broadly in the energy, nuclear energy industry. Um, we saw in the early 1970s an energy crisis that really caused utilities to reevaluate their demand for future reactors. One big issue at the time is that the industry was growing so quickly that actually we're hitting supply chain and workforce constraints. So some of those, some of the length of uh, those licenses was not actually directly tied to the regulatory system. It was just how the business was developing. But that's where I think we saw things with Part 52. Part 52 is hopefully going to try and address those really long timeframes on the regulatory approvals. And that, it, it depends on who you talk to. That was a mixed bag. And so the primary reactor that we did see uh, that was licensed and that led to actual reactors being built uh, during the nuclear renaissance under Part 52 was the AP-1000. And that process to get that design certification, which is that kind of design license that you can reference in future applications, that did take a relatively long time from the very beginning of pre-application all the way to the granting of that. And the combined licenses also took a decent amount of time too. I think uh, it's somewhere around 10 to 12 years from the very time they began the process to one, the uh, my licenses for the facilities in the southern U.S. were granted. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, quite a quite a bit of time. Hopefully, we can get those uh, timelines a little bit faster. You talked a little bit about design approval and maybe new types of reactors. Can you explain to our listeners what is considered a advanced nuclear reactor and how they're different from the current reactors like the AP-1000? Yeah, for sure. So there is no commonly held definition of what an advanced reactor is. It depends on who you talk to. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission uses a different definition than the Department of Energy. Co Congress has used multiple definitions over time. Industry has different discussions. Uh, generally, the way that I think about an advanced reactor is a reactor that we're going to build in the 2020s and beyond. Um, so a good kind of dividing line is that AP-1000 and everything before that are conventional reactors, at least in the U.S. context, because we're highly unlikely to build a large light water reactor in the U.S. in the near future, and I think probably again for a number of reasons. So when we look at the next generation of reactor technology, we have several different uh, reactor types we're looking at. One big thing that a lot of people are familiar with are small modular reactors. Um, sometimes people use that as an umbrella term for all types of advanced reactors. I typically use the NRC definition, which a small modular reactor is a small light water reactor. Uh, and the leader there that people are most familiar with is probably going to be New Scale, uh, which has received initial design approval and is going for design certification right now from the NRC. Uh, the key insight with a small modular reactor that's a light water reactor is that you have a lot of the same systems. You use light water as the coolant. Uh, you are generally going to have a, uh, um, a containment dome just like you do with a large facility. 
but by shrinking the, sh the size of the reactor, you're able to get some safety and engineering benefits, and also the big one really is economics. Uh, but beyond that, we have other types of reactors that are really reimagining how we actually do the fission process. They use different types of fuels. They use different types of coolants. There's a number of different approaches that companies are pursuing. Generally speaking, the sizes of these reactors are all much smaller than conventional reactors. Conventional reactors are usually 1 to 1 1.5 gigawatts electric. When we're looking at, uh, say, small modular reactors, we're usually talking in the range of anywhere from 50 to 300 megawatts electric. Advanced reactors are generally going to be less than 300 megawatts electric. There's a few that are larger than that. We also have a class that's really small reactors that are, say, anywhere from one megawatt electric up to 20 or 30 megawatts electric. So there's a lot more variation in the size of the reactors, but the big difference is the fuel and the coolant. And so uh, if you look at um, the specifics that uh, the reactor developers are pursuing right now, every reactor designer kind of has their different approach to this. There's not easy classifications, but this is where you have things like molten salt reactors. Uh, you have things uh, like trisofuel, high temperature gas reactors, essentially different ways to have the fission operate and then cool that uh, reaction. And the hope is that that will allow you to be a lot more economic because we essentially have kind of hit a dead end on the efficiencies in light water reactor technology because we've been doing that for 50 to 70 years commercially. And most of these other types of reactors, we've not actually tried commercially. So the hope is by just reapproaching how we're doing those things, we can maybe try different ways to get to an economic nuclear product. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because these are new reactors, they have to go through certain design approval. Does this require a totally new and revised regulatory process, given the, the differences of the future reactors? Yes and no. And so this is where I think you get to the critical regulatory question that's facing the United States uh, nuclear industry right now. Technically speaking, it is possible and the only way you can get a advanced reactor regulated right now are under the existing regulatory pathways, meaning Part 50 or Part 52. And so what you need to do is you need to take a regulatory system that is decades old, that was built and literally had regulations written in based on light water reactor characteristics and adapt it to your technology. That is a big challenge. It leads to inefficient licensing because often you have reactor vendors needing to get exceptions uh, or exemptions. And so anytime they're getting a regulatory exemption from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that does not look great from a public perspective. In this case, it's because the regulations themselves are not sufficient and they're not technology neutral. What it means is that you're, you're essentially just getting exemption for something that doesn't apply to your technology. But that doesn't matter if you're talking about the New York Times. The New York Times is going to do this big story about how you're getting all these exemptions to be able to do a new technology. There isn't necessarily a safety issue when you have an exemption. It just means the regulatory system was not adapted for that specific technology. And so when we look at the near-term advanced reactor developers right now, when we look at, say, uh, small reactor developers like Oklo, which is pursuing a micro-reactor under Part 52, when we look at Kairos, which is doing a more or less a pilot project um, to lead up to a larger reactor that they're doing a construction permit under Part 50, um, when you look at uh, the other big reactor vendors that just won the advanced reactor demonstration projects, um, the uh, X-Energy in Washington and then uh, TerraPower in Wyoming, they have to use Part 50 and 52. Uh, they have to go through those pathways, and that's a really big challenge. They can do it. It just means it's going to take more time and be more costly for them to get through that process. And it doesn't actually mean that we're going to have these reactors 
regulated to the highest degree of safety possible just because the processes are bad. So what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is embarking on right now is a really ambitious, broad program of regulatory modernization. What does that mean? First, they're creating a new pathway called Part 53, which is going to be performance-based. Instead of prescriptive-based, where you have these specific requirements to meet to demonstrate that you are safe, you actually are going to have things that are closer to safety goals. You're actually going to be able to demonstrate that, hey, my reactor is able to demonstrate safety. It is able to meet a level of performance, and so it should therefore be able to be approved and licensed. Uh, the other thing beyond Part 53, and Part 53 is really important to provide more optionality for advanced reactor vendors, is we're also revising other parts of our regulatory scheme. So things like emergency planning zones, that was one of the first things that started getting changed. We're moving to being able to make sure that those are right-sized to the actual risk presented by a specific type of advanced reactor. Uh, one other really big area right now, which I think might be critically important, is NEPA, the, the Part 51 rules. So currently, the NRC is developing a generic environmental impact statement for advanced reactors, which allows them to look at a lot of those more high-level issues with using a nuclear reactor generically. That would make that environmental review that accompanies your license process much more easy. But NRC is also looking at a broader revision to Part 51 right now. So as these things change over time, hopefully those environmental requirements will not be as stringent. And I think that there's a very strong basis environmentally for why that should be the case. First of all, the climate benefits of nuclear are clear. That is something that should be, uh, I think, considered for any environmental review. But also these advanced reactors, especially the really small ones, just don't have big environmental impacts. They're not large sites. Uh, in many cases, they don't require water at all, which is one of the biggest offsite impacts of a large light water reactor. And so we don't necessarily need to have super involved in environmental impact statements in the future. We actually might be able to use other types of NEPA compliance measures like an environmental assessment and maybe even for microreactors, a categorical exclusion. So there's a number of ways that we're moving right now. Whether we're going to get there is a big question. And I think that if you're looking at the potential success of advanced reactors, we we need to figure out how to get this regulation right. Okay, it sounds like because there's so many physical, operational, and other differences with these advanced reactors compared to the currently operating designs, uh, you mentioned uh, this uh, 53 pathway. Um, so for an advanced reactor company trying to like build something like this uh what is the process for like going through 53 if it if that becomes implemented uh to approve this type of reactor like and how is it how's it better yeah so that's what nrc and the nuclear industry are trying to figure out right now so part 53 is still in its early stages it was mandated originally in 2018 by congress in the nuclear energy innovation and modernization act and essentially, they need to develop a framework that meets certain criteria. They, it needs to be risk-informed, performance-based, and technology-inclusive, which in effect means that it needs to be something that the NRC hasn't done before. You need to be able to use risk information, things like probabilistic risk assessment. Uh, you need to be able to use performance-based uh, analysis uh, and actually get to, the, to get to the goals in terms of actually meeting the safety. And NRC hasn't done that before. So right now we're in the very early stages of the regulatory process. We're actually technically in like a pre-regulatory process uh, where the NRC is trying to get input from industry and other locations and other um, people and regulators right now. But it's not clear what that process is going to look like. I would imagine that you would have something similar to what we see in Part 1552, where you might have some flexibility to go through an operating uh, um, operating permit 
uh, get a construction license, all of that. Uh, maybe get a combined license, have some sort of design certification, but that is still to be decided. Uh, and I think that when we look at what those systems could look like, the big difference is if we are gonna be doing a lot of regulatory work to make part 50 and 52 viable regulatory pathways, part 53 really needs to be much more transformational than just kind of a second stage part 50 or part 52. It really needs to reimagine how we do nuclear regulation in a way that I think is more reflective of what we do in other sectors, like say uh, food and drug regulation or the aerospace sector. Um, when we look abroad right now, the NRC is actually in some cases uh, being, I think, surpassed by foreign regulators that are using these more performance-based systems. Um, so that's something that getting the NRC to feel comfortable and being able to regulate these reactors is a big deal. And this is actually where I think that one of the big things that is usually missed in these discussions, instead of just focusing on the regulatory pathways, we also need to think about the regulator itself. And the NRC does not necessarily have the capabilities right now to be able to regulate a dozen plus different types of very novel reactor designs. So one of the things that they're doing in support from the uh, Department of Energy and the national labs is actually increasing their capabilities. They're trying to be able to understand how certain types of reactors work, do certain types of regulatory research to make sure that they have sufficient performance information when they make these types of determinations. And that's actually a big challenge because in many cases, we're dealing with novel systems or new materials that we only have some limited data on. And so there's an aspect here in terms of how we do this regulation that's not just the regulator itself. It's also what happens in the broader industry, how we do things like me mechanical codes and standards, making sure that the NRC is in a position where we can properly evaluate those uh, kind of uh, considerations and those inputs. And there's also a big resource question here of just, is the NRC properly resourced and equipped to be able to handle what we hope are hundreds of advanced reactor applications in the 2030s? I don't know if we're there yet. It sounds like there's a lot of barriers to entry that we're trying to navigate here. And uh, I'm also curious, is it, is it true that uh, advanced reactor startup companies would need to currently need to pay the NRC huge sums of money to achieve a design approval? And, and will that remain as part of the process moving forward, do you think? Yeah, so that, that's a big challenge. The way that the NRC is funded right now is almost entirely from fees on the nuclear industry. Uh, most of those fees are just uh, general licensing fees or annual fees that are charged to existing reactors uh, to pay for the amount of regulation that occurs for them. But when you have an application in front of the NRC right now, you're actually charged hourly fees. You essentially need to pay the government for the benefits that you get from getting a, a nuclear license. And that's kind of the justification for how this developed historically. But the fees are actually really intense. Um, if you're looking at the amount of money, it's $300 per hour for every single hour that an NRC reviewer spends on your application. And it's not just for your application. It's also just general interaction with the NRC. So if you have pre-application uh, or you're doing something, something like a technical report that the NRC is reviewing that's not even tied to a reactor, you're paying for that. And so I think if you look at, say, New Scale, New Scale got design certification. They have to pay a ton of money on the engineering side to support their licensing. But when you actually look at the NRC fees them themselves, they were more than $70 million. Wow. And that's for a design certification. That's not for a reactor they're going to be making money on. And so that's a really big challenge when you look at a lot of the startups that we're talking about. And one of the things I think is really important to understand about the nuclear industry right now and in the U.S. is we're actually seeing a competitive ecosystem forming for the first time. 
we have never seen the amount of nuclear innovation and the number of startups and the just new business innovation and energy that uh, we're seeing right now. It's never happened in nuclear before. And that's one of the reasons I think the nuclear energy sector has maybe not as performed as many of us hoped it would is because we don't have that type of competitive energy we might see in other sectors. We're building that now. And we're having a lot of venture capital flows go into advanced fission companies. And that's where things like fees matter. If you actually look at that and you look at the amount of money that you need to spend on NRC fees, that can actually be a pretty substantial barrier to being able to participate or being able to fund a project. And the other thing that is important here, it's not necessarily an advanced reactor designer that's paying those fees. It's the licensed applicant. And the licensed applicant is usually a utility. And when we talk about advanced reactors, we actually hope to expand the customers. So it's not just large utilities that are investor-owned utilities have billions of dollars. In some cases, we're looking at municipal utilities. The new scale project that they're pursuing in Utah right now is actually a consortium of a bunch of municipal utilities that are not very big. They don't have necessarily deep pockets, and they're trying to serve uh, customers in areas that uh, are not necessarily going to be able to fund billion-dollar-plus projects. And so those licensing fees can add up for them. Other sorts of uh, applicants you might see, like, say, Alaska. Alaska is a really big market potentially for microreactors. Those licensing fees that they might need to pay just because it's so early and upfront in the process might actually dissuade them from even going for a microreactor project in the first place. Because just because you go through an application process doesn't mean it's going to be granted. So there's an element of regulatory risk. And if you're talking about anywhere from one to five million dollars for a small project before you can even start getting regulatory approval and getting uh, construction going. That's a pretty big barrier, and we really want to, I think, public. And thinking about the public interest here and the interest in decarbonization and also making sure that some of those areas that are maybe more uh, economically disadvantaged or energy transition communities, making sure that they have the ability to build these reactors and get the public benefits, the jobs and everything, that's something that I think we should really rethink how these fees are charged. Um, the final point I'll make on fees is the thing that kind of just sucks here is that advanced reactor vendors are paying for the inefficiency of regulations. So when you're going through a Part 50 or 52 process and you're trying to figure out what parts of uh, that regulatory pathway apply to your uh, reactor or not and going through the NRC and working with them on that, even if large portions of the regulation should not apply, going through the process to actually get NRC to agree to that and not apply that part of the regulation, you're getting charged for that. You're essentially getting charged for the fact that the NRC is inefficient. And I think if you looked at, say, 10 years down the road when the NRC is in a really inef a really efficient uh, system that's designed for advanced reactors, you would see fees for a license that are anywhere from 20 to 40 percent less than they are now. And that, that that's something that just, I think, from a public interest perspective, but also from an international competitiveness perspective, just doesn't make sense. Do you think we could fund the NRC a different way? Like, are other in industries regulated and funded by that method? So when I was at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, I did an in-depth report looking at really this specific question, the history of the NRC fee system, how other industries are funded. There's definitely an opportunity for that. The politics of it are really challenging, and I think that's why we haven't seen it changed. But when you look at, say, the Food and Drug Administration, the Food and Drug Administration, the approvals so that we can get medicine uh, in the country, that's usually funded by a mix of both private funds and public funds. And so you do have 
uh, a situation there where it's split funding. Uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, that is actually almost entirely funded by industry fees by uh, passengers, but the actual innovators themselves, when you're getting, say, an air, uh, airplane design approved, or you're actually, say, doing something like getting a rocket launched, the FAA doesn't charge fees for that. The innovation activities are not covered. Another thing that I'll point out, FDA and FAA are safety regulators. Most other safety or public health regulators do not have fees. Usually when we see regulatory fees, it's, in, it's economic regulators. It's regulators like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is almost entirely fee-funded, but that's because they're dealing with economic uh, entities, co companies that are making tons of money. Security and Exchange Commission, which w regulates Wall Street, Wall Street has a ton of money. They're able to pay for it. It's different when you get to safety regulation. And one thing that I think is really important when we're talking about, say, comparative energy resources, the Environmental Protection Agency which regulates the fossil fuel sector and all of its really, really, really bad public health impacts is not fee funded. It's funded by the public. And that means that if you're talking about things competitively, the, the nuclear industry is paying for its own regulation when it's dirty competitors that literally kill people every day are not. Yeah, that seems like a complete injustice in my book, but you know, that could be a topic for another day. It definitely, we definitely need to change out it's funded for sure. So we talked about this a little bit, a little bit before. But these new advanced reactors have have novel passive safety features, meaning they just simply can't have accidents like older designs. Given this fact, can we finally rewrite some of the safety regulations for these reactors that aren't so strict? I think an example you talked about was the what do you, what do you call it in the emergency preparedness zone? Uh, yeah, emergency planning zone. I believe they planning are zone. Yeah. EPZ is the uh, acronym. So, yes, we can definitely start moving in that direction. Uh, and this is where I think um, there's a challenge with how do we maintain public support for nuclear regulation. And that's, I think, more than anything else, that's what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission does. And I think that's why we have nuclear regulation, is just to maintain social license to operate. So that once someone decides they want to build a nuclear power plant in your community, you know it's going to be safe because you have an independent regulator that's looking at it. And as we go through and we modernize all of our regulations, there's always going to be a concern of, oh, is this actually something that we're adjusting for the technology, which I think in most cases it would be, or are we making regulations easier and less stringent so that you're able to deploy a new technology and like is this just like capitalism run amok? I think generally speaking, when you look at what the NRC is doing and how it's doing it, it's a very small C cons conservative culture. It's very safety oriented. And so it's not so much a matter of reducing the stringency of the regulation in terms of how stringent the regulation is. It's about making sure that the processes are not overly burdensome. And this is actually like, this is something that it's, it's hard to explain to people that don't work in the nuclear industry. But when it comes to having regulation for nuclear safety, there is such a thing as too much regulation because too much regulation actually means that you are not focusing on that which is most safety significant. When you take most, say, advanced reactors designs, there's maybe one to five novel safety issues that the NRC will need to work through to figure out, is this reactor, specific reactor design going to be able to operate safely? And if they're focused just on checking boxes for, for say, hundreds of different process things that they think are related to safety, that's not the same as saying, hey, let's look at this reactor, let's look at the actual safety concerns that we have for this reactor and make sure that these are being dealt with and that whatever analysis we're using shows that. 
And so I, I think when you look at what happened with the EPZ, that was a really uh, encouraging development because it enabled for, for applicants to define an EPZ that is much smaller than 10 miles. Originally, for a large lightwater reactor, it was a 10-mile emergency preparedness zone where you essentially had to have 10 miles out from the reactor where you do all sorts of planning to do evacuations, make sure the local communities are prepared. And like, yeah, sure, you can always have everybody be more prepared, but does that actually contribute to the safety of a reactor? The 10 miles was actually at the time just a number that was picked because of one specific analysis decades ago. So looking now, when we actually look at what the safety risks look like, uh, a lot of advanced reactor developers are hoping that they'll be able to get a, uh, an EPZ that ends at their site boundary. So they don't need to do off-site preparedness and preparation. Uh, and that the uh, commission's currently considering that right now. And I think in a lot of cases, that makes sense because you don't want to actually have, again, all these things where you're just trying to do a process, check the box, as opposed to really focusing on, hey, we want to have a safety culture. We want to maintain the things that are most safety relevant. Um, a good example of something like this, just to kind of get a sense of like, why do we want to change these processes? It's not how it's not so much the level that we're regulating at; it's how we're doing the regulation. So, New Scale, when it had to go through and get its design certification, there were several exemptions that it was trying to get. One good exemption that they were able to get was that they were required uh, that the current uh, NRC regulations require you to have two operators for every reactor that you have. New Scale's design at the time was a twelve pack, and so even though their reactor would be about half the size, or their 12 packs, so 12 reactors would be half the size of a normal large light water reactor, they would have been required to have 24 operators. That has nothing to do with safety. Uh, that just, that's literally a regulatory requirement that you'd have all these extra operators doing nothing, even though that reactor, that the reactor system is arguably one of the safest ever designed. And so that just doesn't make sense. So they're able to get an exemption where they're able to reduce the number of operators to actually be reflective of how many operators do we need to operate this safely. Moving forward, there are a number of micro-reactors in particular that hope to have no operators. How does the NRC deal with that? That's a really good question that I think the NRC and companies want to figure out right now. Um, can we actually have an, a reactor that operates autonomously, that is essentially walk-away safe, or however you want to describe it? It's possible. How we're going to get there is, I think, a good question. Right. Yeah, I'm just concerned that, and I think you touched on this a little, is that people will see these exemptions not as the logical process of regulating new types of reactors, but they'll see it as, oh, they're just trying to let them be accident prone. And uh, how much sway do you think anti-nuclear interest groups have in that they could get in the way of updated regulations for advanced reactors? So that's a really good question. I think it's one of the biggest variables that we're going to figure out in the next five to 10 years as we actually start building some of these reactors. So I think in the last five to 10 years or so, you've actually seen that anti-nuclear groups and advocates in the U.S. have lost a lot of political power. Uh, and that's in part because there's a generational change. I think when you look at, say, old uh, hardcore environmentalists that were originally part of the environmental movement in the 1970s and 1980s uh, that still currently have a lot of executive positions at environmental NGOs. They were anti-nuclear when they started their careers. They're still anti-nuclear now. It's part of just who they are and how they um, uh, advocate for things. What we're actually seeing now is that a lot of the younger generations that instead of seeing, I think, seeing environmentalism as colored through the 1970s, see it as defined by climate change. 
And so because of climate change, many environmental advocates that are in their 20s or 30s, Generation uh, Z or millennials, are much more willing to accept nuclear. And they understand that, yeah, there might be some issues with it. But when we look at the challenge of climate change, it's worth pursuing. And so politically, anti-nuclear groups are not as powerful as they were. And we're actually seeing that uh, nuclear support, at least on nuclear innovation, tends to be very bipartisan. Uh, the two major bills in 2018 and 2019 that really kind of kickstarted things for advanced reactors in the US were both bipartisan. Um, I think one of them passed on a vo voice vote in the Senate, which doesn't happen these days. It's really encouraging. But when it comes to the regulatory side of things, that's where things get interesting. And I don't think we've actually seen intense organized anti-nuclear opposition to advanced reactor regulatory developments for the last several years because a lot of those anti-nuclear groups that still do exist just didn't think these reactors were coming to market. We're now starting to get to reactors coming to market, actually starting to submit license applications. And so that could increase um, in intensity over the next several years. And I think, generally speaking, the NRC will come to the right safety conclusion. They will not necessarily be influenced by a crazy anti-nuclear argument that like this thing is not safe or anything that's not based in technical knowledge. But I think the the, the risk here is that anti-nuclear advocates can slow down the regulatory process. They can cause lawsuits. Uh, they can cause uh, extra time for regulations that should be relatively straightforward. They could delay specific license applications getting granted. Uh, I think the the um, really, excuse me for saying, but the nuclear option here is if you actually have another anti-nuclear commissioner come on board, like we saw with uh, former chairman Jasko, um, that would be very damaging to the NRC right now, just because if you damage those processes when they're in this really um, uh, influential state of uh, reform and a uh, very fluid situation, that could have very large impacts. And I think that that's where the, the greatest risk of their kind of anti-nuclear advocacy is in this uh, regulatory process right now. I can certainly see that the uh, and we've seen the narrative from the anti-nuclear movement in the last ten years. They've kind of just been denying any progress in nuclear. They're saying, "Oh, nuclear is dying. It's a nail in the coffin." Like, don't believe in the pipe dreams of advanced nuclear. Like, if, these are all like real headlines. Um, but uh, you're right. The fact that things are actually moving, it's kind of you know exposing some falsehoods within that narrative. And it is true that a lot of the modern, uh, you know, recent new generation environmentalism is uh, very motivated by the frame of climate change and also the urgency that climate change is presenting. So when it comes to quickly deploying clean energy technology, are we up to the task of moving extraordinarily fast with regulatory approval for advanced reactors once we get that ball rolling? Yeah, so this is um, the uh, last report I wrote before I left the Nuclear Innovation Alliance looked uh, in a fair bit at this specific question. Essentially, if we really had a concerted effort, how short could we get licensing approvals for advanced reactors? Uh, my analysis there really kind of was looking at the possibility of getting a license in 24 months or less. Uh, I think that that is a aggressive goal, but it's achievable when you look at the general safety profile of advanced reactors, when you look at modern technologies. Again, these, these systems, these regulations were designed well before computers and email were a thing. And so even just feedback loops between the regulator and the applicant can get a lot quicker these days. I think right now we're not necessarily on track for rapid regulatory approvals at the pace needed to mitigate climate change. And the issue is not so much 
approvals for an individual reactor. If an individual reactor took, say, four years instead of three years to approve, yeah, that year sucks, but that's not a ton of carbon emissions compared to, uh, say, a uh, the, how the system would act otherwise. You're losing maybe a year. The issue is actually how quickly can we, can we commercialize advanced reactors? And this is where the licensing timeline really matters. When we have shorter timelines for licensing, it means that project timelines shrink. When project timelines shrink, we're able to get technological learning, which means that we're able to figure out how to make reactors cheaper over time. And this is something that we never, again, never had in the nuclear sector before because a large light water reactor takes so long to build. By the time it's licensed and built, it's anywhere from 10 to 20 years. At that point, you're just going to go through, go for a brand new technology that has certain improvements. You're not actually going to be able to get technological learning advantages, learn how to improve processes. And so for the reactors that we're talking about, the advanced reactor developers, what they're hoping is that they can model a generational life cycle that we saw with renewables. The reason that renewables were able to reduce costs so quickly is that when you have a project life cycle that's 24 to 48 months and you start stacking those, in 10 years, you could have four or more project life cycles. And if you're reducing your cost 10% every project life cycle, that starts adding up really quickly. And this is where reducing the durations of licensing reviews as much as possible is really important. If we can get things from currently targets are around three to four years, if we can get that down to two years, that could potentially accelerate advanced reactor cost declines 10% or more in the next 15 uh, years. That That's pretty rapid, and that, that's the hope that we're going for. The other thing that I think is a little bit more concerning than necessarily just the timelines itself is how do we have NRC in a position to handle a high volume licensing applications? Um, that gets into a whole bunch of resource questions about how well resourced the NRC is. I don't think that with the current Part 5052 system that the NRC will be able to handle 100 advanced reactor applications by 2030, which is possible when you include microreactors right now. That's a lot of license applications. I don't know if they have the capability to do that with current systems. That's where getting Part 53 right really matters. But even more broadly, I think you need to have visionary commissioners and um, support from Congress to really essentially handle high volume of licensing applications. It can be done. And I think that if you actually look internationally, there might be other regulators that are more successful at doing that. And I think that's one thing that we really need to prioritize as an industry is getting fast regulatory approvals, especially once we have designs certified. I think that that's a key is once we've done enough to figure out what are the best designs, making sure that the uh, derivative licenses from a, a certified design go really quickly, I think is really straightforward when we're talking about an advanced reactor versus a conventional reactor. I agree. So like when it comes to, say if we had you know the ideal NRC that we, we would like to see in the future, um, what would be like a realistic pathway to, to seeing that through? Uh, like if you could include, if you can send a bill to Congress, like what, what were the main points that would be in it? Um, so some of it, I think is political. Um, so currently we only have three commissioners right now. I think NRC commissioners need to be a high priority for future appointments. We should always have five and I think they should be some of the most innovative people. I think in some cases we should have people from other sectors like aerospace does performance-based regulation really, really well. Having a former FAA regulator might not be a bad idea. Uh, but more broadly, I think there is a question just about how we do the regulatory process itself. 
um, is this kind of system that we developed over time really the best way to do things in terms of, say, having individual projects get licensed as opposed to, say, focusing on the designs? Um, dealing with questions like NEPA, I think if we don't see regulatory movement on uh, really making NEPA right size for advanced reactors, that's an area that I think Congress should consider. Again, I think a microreactor, if you're talking about something that you can fit in a shipping container and has, other than the energy and heat output, no relationship to the outside environment, I don't think you need a full environmental impact statement for that, which is a very long, intense, laborious process involving lots of commu um, community input, output, which is usually not going to be actual communities. It's just going to be uh, anti-nuclear advocates. Um, I don't think you need to do that. Regulations require that right now. If the NRC doesn't change that, then I think that NEPA would be a good area for them to step in on. I think the biggest thing really that Congress can do is make sure that Part 53 is actually transformative. That's not just a check the box exercise. It's not just the slightly evolved Part 50 or Part 52, that it really is a true performance-based regulatory system. And I think the biggest issue and the thing that um, I've been not openly critical, but I've been really concerned about how NRC has been doing this, they're not looking at what other countries and other industries are doing. If I had done Part 53 and I was like leading that, I would have done a six-month session where I would have done nothing but invite foreign regulators, invite regulators in other industries, and really try and understand how do you do performance-based regulation in a way that's successful. If we really can get NRC to embrace performance-based regulation as their mantra and actually use the best parts of performance-based regulation while also avoiding some of the pitfalls, uh, then I think we can actually have a really nimble regulator. And part of the question here, too, is this fee system that we have, I think it creates really weird incentives on the NRC side. It actually constrains the resources more than you might think. It also means that Congress is maybe not as attentive to how NRC is spending its money just because there's it's not taxpayer dollars, so why should Congress care? Um, I think you need to have an attentive focus on how NRC is developing resources and how they're using them. And this is actually something that I'm generally concerned about with the NRC. Uh, because of a hiring freeze after the nuclear renaissance failed, because uh, NRC had to cut essentially a quarter of its staff over 10 years, I don't know if the NRC has the human personnel requirements to deal with a massive ramp up in advanced reactor applications over the next 10 years. They need to do a lot more hiring, and they haven't been hiring for years. Uh, a significant portion of the existing uh, personnel at the NRC are actually set to retire. And I think um, one of the, most recently, one of the people that was leading Part 53, the regulatory process, retired. That's not good. Uh, you need to actually really think about how do you develop a pipeline of qualified people to go into the NRC. Um, that's a huge challenge right now because it's a really competitive market and you've got some of the best, most brilliant nuclear engineers going to the private sector as opposed to the NRC. You also need to make sure that they've got continuity of knowledge, that as they're developing these new capabilities that handle new types of reactors, making sure that there's pipelines to make sure that that knowledge is transferred down and that you have new people coming into the NRC. They're not trying to reinvent the wheel, that have the confidence to be able to handle their issues appropriately. That's something that I think is, is somewhat missing from the discussions about how we do this regulatory uh, modernization. That's interesting. Uh, hopefully, we can get some of the best and brightest on making this process uh, a lot more well-oiled and capable of dealing with the the future of new nuclear. So, kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, you uh, have uh, quite a bit of knowledge surrounding like nuclear technology in the aerospace industry. What are some exciting new technologies coming down the pipeline that that you're excited about? Yeah, for sure. So um, in uh, 
we're seeing a lot of things that are happening on the space side right now. And what I'd actually say is that if you look at really advanced reactors in the U.S., uh, we've built an advanced reactor in the U.S. It's called Kilopower. Um, it was a small demonstration reactor that was built for NASA. Um, like it said, like it sounds, it was designed to produce a kilowatt of power that you could potentially then send that system to outer space. That was the first novel reactor that was designed, built, and operated in the U.S. in decades, and they did that in a really effective manner. And so that kind of started, I think, advanced reactors more broadly in the U.S. It really showed that we can do innovation. This happened in 2018 when they actually reached criticality with that. That lined up really well with how we kind of some of the legislation and how the companies uh, went forward. Looking forward, we're actually seeing innovation, I think, across the board in the space nuclear sector, again, in a way that we've not seen before. Um, if you look, there's essentially there's four types of nuclear energy you can use in outer space. There's radioisotopes, uh, which historically are things like plutonium-238, which create small amounts of heat and electricity reliably for decades when they're in uh, radioisotope, uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Uh, we use that on the Apollo missions. We use that on Voyager missions. We use that for the Mars rovers. Um, that is something that historically has primarily been something that DOE and NASA work together. Uh, companies are working on that now, including the company that I just joined, Xenopower, working on trying to figure out how to make radioisotopes into a commercial solution. There's other companies that are um, entering the space as well. Then we have fission reactors. So that's like kilopower, but fission reactors are actually uh, potentially a lot larger. Um, currently, NASA is developing a solicitation for a fission surface power a project that would be around 40 kilowatts. I think if you talk to a lot of the advanced reactor developers, they're actually looking at closer to one megawatt just because of how the um, use of low enriched uranium works out um, in terms of mass benefits for a space mission. That's really exciting because if you look at some of the new space activities, one megawatt of power that you put on the moon actually enables you to do things like space mining, which is pretty crazy. And that's something that uh, a lot of companies are starting to look at right now. Uh, the third application is nuclear thermal propulsion, uh, which is essentially a nuclear rocket. Uh, the uh, DARPA, which is the defense agency that created the Internet, uh, they're looking at actually doing a really rapid prototype called Draco, um, which would be a nuclear rocket that they would aim to demonstrate by 2025. That is crazy fast. That might well be the first advanced reactor that is uh, operated uh, under U.S. jurisdiction. Um, and the benefits with the nuclear rocket is that you actually get a, um, at least twice the um, delta V, the uh, essentially the fuel efficiency in orbit that you do with a chemical rocket. And so the military is looking at that because it could be game-changing for military applications. NASA is also looking at that because that might be how we actually go to Mars would be a nuclear rocket. Um, the final area, which I think is really interesting, is fusion. So you could use fusion for fusion power in space. Um, fusion power on Earth is really hard. Fusion propulsion actually might be here before we see uh, future fusion space propulsion might be here before you see fusion power. And that's because you can actually uh, do the fusion process and use uh, direct exhaust to uh, propel. So once you hit net energy gain with a fusion system, you can then relatively easily build a fusion rocket, at least compared to then capturing that energy and doing all the balance of plant and trying to do commercial systems. So those are kind of the four areas that um, are how we could use nuclear in space. And we're seeing activities and innovations in the private sector and government across all of those. There's government funding for all of those, and there's commercial activities in all of those, not just in the U.S., but also abroad. That's a lot of stuff that's going on. It seems from all this talk of regulation, it would be easier to build a nuclear reactor on the moon than it is to get it done here under the current framework. It, it might be. <laughs> so with, with the way regulations are working in the aerospace sector, dealing with these nuclear technologies, uh, like 
how is it different? How is it different? Like it's, it seems to me the way you just described it, it's actually easier to work with nuclear technologies in the aerospace sector under aerospace sector regulations than it is in, under the current energy framework uh, for civilian power, at least on, on here on Earth. Yeah. So when you look at uh, the regulatory system, we actually technically for at least commercial, purely commercial applications, we didn't have a regulatory pathway for space nuclear systems um, until 2019. And the Trump administration um, in a very interagency process updated our launch regulations, which actually allowed commercial pathways for the first time. Uh, before that, you actually need to have presidential approval for any launch of a space nuclear system. And those were all going to be either Department of Defense or NASA systems, not necessarily a commercial system, even if that commercial system is for a government client. So what we have right now, which is relatively effective, I think, is a framework for the launch approval for space nuclear systems. Uh, and that's, um, if you're talking commercially right now, that's handled through the Federal Aviation Administration. The specific office is actually the office that licenses uh, commercial launches. So they're the ones that have uh, um, dealt with SpaceX. And I think actually SpaceX going through that process and really trying to rewrite regulations, make sure that they could launch and land a rocket and deal with those kind of novel safety issues uh, has really made that into a nimble regulator. Generally, the Federal Aviation Administration has been a very effective performance-based regula uh, regulator. Um, I will say, with the exception of the Boeing 737 MAX, which is a complete regulatory disaster, very big asterisk, so just flagging that now. But generally speaking, the FAA has done a very good job. And I think the, the thing that I'd point to is drones. Uh, drones arrived really quickly. There were a lot of potential issues where essentially, because uh, of how crazy drones uh, change the aerospace use in the U.S., how we just change how we use um, uh, the um, different altitudes and uh, all the ways that we actually handle um, flying vehicles. The FAA did a really good job in, of incorporating drones from a regulatory perspective in a way that you now have tens of thousands of drones operators, if not more in the U.S., are able to fly commercial hobby drones but not threaten uh, airline safety. And so that they did a really good job on that. And I think that if you look at how we might be able to do things for launch regulation, I'm hopeful that they'll be able to do that as well. Now, the issue when we actually talk about some of the space stuff is it's not clear there's a regulator for once you're in space. And that's where I think we start getting into kind of weird, uh, more policy-focused issues as opposed to regulatory issues. Right now, you could probably get FAA to approve you to launch a nuclear reactor to the moon, go run it on the moon. Once it's running on the moon, there's no one to actually really oversee what you're doing. Um, and that, that might be where the, the difference is, where Nuclear Regulatory Commission is largely focused uh, on the reactor side on maintaining your operations and making sure that your operations are running smoothly. It's a little bit different in space because if you have a reactor accident in space, like even just like there's not ways to tr um, transfer radioactive materials, there's no air on the moon. So your reactor accident will hopefully be relatively contained, but that's not necessarily true. There's a, there's a lot of questions there and there's no clear regulator. And that's something I think we're actually going to see in a very iterative manner. Right now, the big thing was just getting that launch pathway. As we start doing more and more of these systems, we're going to have policy questions emerge. Um, one thing that happened during the Cold War is that uh, the Soviet Union actually launched dozens of reactors into Earth orbit. Uh, that didn't go very well. One of those reactors crashed into Canada, uh, and luckily they were able to respond in time and didn't harm anyone, but that's not something you necessarily want to see in headlines. Um, one of their reactors they sent into, quote-unquote, a graveyard orbit to just store it until the, uh, uh, the uh, fission products were decayed away. Yeah, that reactor got hit by another satellite, and so now there are tens of thousands of pieces of radioactive debris that is 
adding to the growing space debris problem. So there, there are ways that you can do that regulation effectively. There's ways that you can. We're going to discover that in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that we can design a really effective system there. Uh, but that's TBD. Yeah, or, or, orbital, like nu nuclear technology in orbit around Earth, that's, I'm sure, a much different thing than a reactor that's stable state on the moon. Um, and you know, I remember, I think it was 2018 or 19, when we were all, uh, it was all the buzz that we were going to potentially put nuclear reactors on the moon. Um, I remember some anti-nuclear headline that was something like, don't let NASA make uh, make the surface of the moon a radioactive wasteland or just something like ridiculously tone deaf that, you know, everybody who understands basic science about radiation was just laughing at. Um, but uh, it, it does raise an interesting point where if we can get space-based nuclear technology approved efficiently and demonstrated in a timely manner in, in the timescales you just mentioned, uh, like that sounds like something we could really learn from to just mirror that here on Earth. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that when you look at creating a novel regulatory system for the first time, when you're in the 2020s, when you have modern computer technology, when you have the most advanced risk analysis we possibly can, when you've got brand new materials, uh, when you have a lot of things that I think are just now ingrained in terms of, say, safety culture or figuring out um, how to handle regulator, uh, regulatory interactions, we're just able to design a new system better than we are to modify a decades old system. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges dealing with NRC is it's always easier to create something new when it comes to government policy and bureaucracy than to change something that's existing. And that's where um, I think that to really see the NRC become the regulator that I think we need it to be for climate reasons, you need to have really strong, effective leadership at the top of the agency on down to the staff level. And you need to have people that are looking at this not in terms of how do we adapt our existing regulation to do this. Rather, just start from the bottom up and say, what are we trying to do? What we're trying to do here is we're trying to make sure that we can use nuclear power in a way that's safe, that limits risk to the, to the uh, public health and safety, that doesn't have major impacts on the environment, in fact, would probably really help the environment by reducing emissions. And we just start from that ground up level, really trying to build up from there. What is the lightest touch regulatory framework that we can do that gets our guarantee of limited risks without being too burdensome to prevent this from happening? And I, I think this is where, when we talk about things like NEPA, some of the environmental stuff, we end up just creating processes for the sake of having processes, not necessarily to ensure any sort of substantive outcome. Um, and that's something that when we are looking at how do we design the system in the future, we should really have the NRC and I think just the nuclear industry more broadly, look at what other sectors and what other countries are doing, see how they've been successful, see how they've failed, and try something completely new uh, because we really need to take, uh, I think, dramatic and uh, small r risky action here we really need to try and move beyond a completely risk averse culture something that is focused on minimizing uh the risk of an industrial accident uh to really absurd degrees but is rather focused on how are we able to ensure safety in a way that guarantees that we reduce emissions and that, that's the biggest thing is i think when you actually look at say risk analysis if the nuclear industry is trying to prevent accidents that are one in a hundred or a million, uh, one hundred thousand or one in a million years, versus a fossil fuel plant that is one in one year, 
Like that that's the risk that we're talking about. We're talking about something that is actually happening and damaging people right now. We can figure out how to reduce risk in the nuclear sector. We can deliver safe products uh, in a way that's effective and reduce emissions, but we really need to change their system so that we can deliver as many reactors as possible uh, as quickly as possible. Agreed. Yeah. Um, well, we're about reached our hour mark here. Um, is uh, there anything else you wanted to add? And if not, where can listeners go to learn more about you and the work you do? For sure. I think that the big thing I want to kind of emphasize is that regulatory innovation in modernization, it's not about reducing regulatory burden. It's not about trying to make these things easier for companies. What it's really about in the end is encouraging business innovation. And the sector can build the most safe, awesome, amazing reactor ever. But at the end of the day, if it can't sell a reactor, it doesn't matter. And that's the thing that I think the sector now needs to really focus on is how do we build these reactors cost effectively? How do we compete in future energy markets and make sure that the regulatory system facilitates that instead of hinders that? Um, so I'm hopeful with just the competitive energy that we're seeing in the U.S. now. I think that having a startup ecosystem is really exciting, but we really do need to have, I think, a much more dedicated effort focusing on business model innovation. Um, in terms of kind of my work right now, I'm focusing a lot more now on the space nuclear side. Um, currently, in addition to working at Xeno, I'm uh, pursuing a space resources PhD at this Kara School of Mines. Uh, my website's powerandresources.com. Just an uh, easy way to kind of keep track of some of the academic work I'm focusing on. Um, otherwise, if you're interested in finding out more about nuclear regulation, uh, my former uh, think tank I worked at, the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, is a great resource. They're really dealing with a lot of these uh, thorny NRC questions, along with their NGO partners, uh, ClearPath, Breakthrough, uh, Third Way, Clean Air Task Force, and Good Energy Collective. Those are really the six NGOs that um, are complementing the trade associations in this uh, space, and I'm really hopeful for the work they're going to be doing. And I think getting to the earlier question of how can anti-nuclear groups cause problems here, um, I think that these pro-nuclear groups getting involved at this level of regulatory uh, activities can actually counteract that and hopefully make these systems much better. And you, you are on Twitter. What's your what's your handle? I'm on Twitter. You can usually find me on Twitter. Uh, it's G-I-L-B-E-A-Q. Um, plenty of opinions, hopefully some good nuggets in there too. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, um, we really want to thank you for coming on and taking the time to speak with us today. So, Thanks so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Alex. Talk to you later. That was a very informative conversation with Alex Gilbert. I think it gave us a good primer in the world of nuclear regulation. It's very complex, but it seems that a lot of good stuff is happening at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This certainly was a worthwhile discussion, providing insight on the regulatory complexities. I hope the needed changes are realized in a timely manner. What was your main takeaway from the conversation, Phil? Something that stuck out to me in this conversation was the ridiculous way in which the NRC gets its funding. This business of billing the applicant for all the hours of rigorous approval by the staff is super unfair. It appears not many other industries have to pay for their own safety regulation in this way. When the anti-nuclear crowd asks why no new plants are being brought online, this is one of the reasons. This monetary barrier to entry is huge, especially for startup companies who have very limited funds. This problem makes a great case for some sort of public funding of this regulatory apparatus. 
That way, it would not incentivize the agency to lag, as they would have limited valuable taxpayer dollars to spend. I hope this fee system can be restructured soon. How about you, Colby? What was your main takeaway of the conversation? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how nuclear technologies can be implemented in space, which can help better inform regulatory procedures here on Earth. It's also hopeful to know that the more energy powering our space-based assets, the more can be accomplished in our space missions. Going from a small RTG to a fully functioning reactor is a major boost in power output, which can translate to a major boost in scientific discoveries and other applications. It was interesting to hear his thoughts on how gigawatt reactors might not be pursued in the coming decades, as smaller, more modular designs seem to be favored for a number of reasons in the next generation of new advanced reactors. I want to emphasize that this doesn't mean we won't be seeing multi-gigawatt plants, as the smaller reactors would likely be grouped at single sites with a shared infrastructure. Definitely. We want to, again, thank Alex for joining us, and we wish him well in the regulatory work he is doing for Xenopower. Certainly. This has been Getting Advanced Reactors to Market. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words, again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org, all words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Produced by Jonna 